Hi, this is Lynette from LeanPub, and in this podcast, I'll be interviewing Jane Friedman. To people in the publishing industry, I think it's fair to say Jane needs no introduction, but for everyone else, I'd just like to say a little bit about her. Uh, Jane is a publishing consultant, speaker, blogger, and general industry expert with over 20 years of experience in a variety of areas and with a particular interest in digital media strategy, but with the range of her engagement with publishing from writing and editing to teaching and marketing strategy, I hesitate to attach any particular label to her work. Um, Jane is the former publisher of Writer's Digest and co-founder, along with her colleague Porter Anderson, of The Hot Sheet, a newsletter for authors that gives valuable insight into the publishing industry, which can often seem quite opaque from the outside, especially for people new to the world of writing and publishing. If you're interested in Jane's work, you can find articles by her at Publishers Weekly. You can check out her YouTube playlist, at, which I'll provide links for, um, and you can buy her book, Publishing 101, on Amazon. You can also get Jane's in-depth lecture series, How to Publish Your Book on either The Great Courses or The Great Courses Plus. I've actually watched the whole course, um, and I would say to anyone looking to publish a book through a conventional publisher for the first time, you owe it to yourself to watch it too. Um, you can learn more about Jane on her website, janefriedman.com, and you can follow her on Twitter at Jane Friedman, and you can subscribe to the Hot Sheet at hotsheetpub.com. In this interview, we're going to talk about Jane's career and about various aspects of the publishing industry that I hope everyone listening will find informative, regardless of your level of knowledge of publishing. So thank you, Jane, for being on this podcast. My pleasure, Len. Thank you for having me. Um, I like to start these interviews by asking people for their origin stories to get a sense of each person's experience and perspective. And I was wondering if you could talk about when you first became interested in writing and how that carried you through to your what I believe was your first job in the industry in Cincinnati. Well, I grew up in a very rural area. So about the number one thing to do was go to the library, read a book, and maybe write something or go play outdoors. <laughs> so I feel like, um, so my attention was very much on, on, on schoolwork and, and my mom liked to write and read at home. And so I feel like, a lot of what I did was mimicking her behavior. And my father was a calligrapher. So there was a lot of things to do with letters and reading as I was growing up. Um, so, it, you know, it's funny. You sometimes talk about people in publishing often talk about it being their passion. And I'm not going to say that writing and publishing is not my passion, but I feel like it's that's that's what I was swimming in from a very young age. And it was very easy to just follow that through through middle school and high school, getting mixed up in yearbook and newspaper and things like that. So I was pretty singular in my focus all the way through college, went straight to a publishing internship, and I've never left the industry. And um, uh I'm not actually sure how to pronounce the name of the company. It's F plus W media is, would you say? F yeah. F oh, okay. Okay. Um, and yeah. it's really interesting. I saw in your bio that while you were there, um, you managed a transition from a print based business to one that was focused on digital products and media. Mm -hmm. Um, and I wanted to ask you about that experience because, you know, even to this day, one senses in people both in news publishing and in book publishing, whose experience predates the transition period, a powerful, sense of loss and nostalgia and even a persisting sense of crisis um, as opposed to hope and excitement. Um, and I was wondering if you could talk about any resistance that you may have encountered in your work carrying out that transition, because it sounded like a really big uh, responsibility. It, it was a very unique time for the company, which uh, I should I should put the context around the company for those who may not be familiar with it. It's 
often called an enthusiast publisher. So that means it's serving very particular interest areas. So think of any kind of hobby or craft, whether that's woodworking or photography or fine art or writing. Uh, there were there was a community of people dedicated to serving that audience. So around the time that the company got sold off to um, a venture capitalist firm, uh, that was about the time I was heading up Writer's Digest and moving up the ladder. Um, they really were pretty progressive and forward thinking. And they saw that the way the company was structured made no sense for the future because it was structured in such a way to silo books from the magazines, to silo online courses from those other products. And so each of them would be managed differently by different people who may or may not uh, have communicated their plans, but they would be all serving the same person. So like in the Writer's Digest community, you had the book people and the magazine people and the online course people and the market guide people and the competitions people. And like, they were just in totally separate divisions and had, they didn't have a common profit and loss statement. They didn't collaborate. So I think the, the company reoriented itself so that it would focus all of its energies on serving the customer rather than thinking about, oh, we're producing this book or we're producing this magazine. Instead, it became, we're producing this content and it can be delivered in many different ways. It can be repurposed and repackaged and whatever, whatever the case might have been, you know, so digital better allowed that to happen because we had um, a direct line into the audience through social media, through websites, through search, through blogs. But we also had a direct to consumer business that helped get it off the ground because we had book a history of book clubs. And of course, we had magazine subscriber lists. So I think the, the company had an advantage in the digital transition that I would say many traditional book publishers don't have because they don't have that direct-to-consumer DNA that F&W has always had. Uh, I can see why, given that description. Um, I was a bit surprised when you said it was acquired by a venture capital firm, but um, it sounds like uh, it would have been a natural fit, uh, given how sophisticated they were in their approach. And that was, uh, you're saying, in the sort of mid-2000s? That's right, yeah. Um, on your website, you're a self-described um, late-sleeping, bourbon-drinking editor. <laughs> um, and while I'd love to talk to you about the first two parts of that description, because I more or less identify with them, um, I'd like to talk to you a little bit about your experience editing. Um, for any aspiring editors out there, for example, can you maybe talk about how you got your first gig uh, and what that was like uh, and how you managed you know, your, your, the, the facet of your career that... When you as an editor. I feel like I'm the worst person to learn about, uh, to learn editing from because I, I don't necessarily think, um, I learned in a way that's writer friendly. So let me explain that. <laughs> so when I started working at F and W, I was often working with people who were experts in their craft or their hobby or their interest area, but they were not writers. So they needed a lot of um, heavy assistance. Like I was even writing some of the books, some parts of the books for the authors because they could make the stuff, but they just did not want to write about it. And so that, and then when I moved over into doing writer's digest specific projects, um, I was mentored by an editor who had 
very much a, a kind of a scorched earth editing style where she would just totally rip things apart, rewrite them, and then send it back to the, the writer to basically, you know, sign off on. And that doesn't necessarily help writers develop <laughs> their own voice or help them improve or give them a chance to revise. Um, but I, because all of my work was, um, all it was graded by her methods of did I, did I take the aggressive and right path to getting this piece in shape? I, I just developed this very aggressive editing style. I think it's, in the type of editing I do today, which is mainly helping writers with submissions materials, things like queries and synopses, proposals, and other business documents, I think that that very aggressive stance still works because many writers do not know what they're doing. But I think when someone gives me a piece of creative writing, I have some really um, <laughs> I have aggressive tendencies that I have to really rein in. So you probably weren't expecting that that story, but. There it is. Uh, no, but it's very interesting. And I, I mean, I have to say, I, I mean, um, you know, I've been the editor of a couple of student magazines and um, uh, newspapers and my um, my editing style was naturally rather aggressive as well. So although on a certain level, I'm surprised on another level, you know, that's where my instincts take me as well. Um, uh, and that included not very much, um, uh, a little bit of literary sort of creative writing, but mostly, you know, you know, what we were aiming for was, you know, New York, New York review of books style, mm. um, uh, essays where someone yeah. is, um, reviewing a book perhaps, but really taking the opportunity to address an issue at a high level. And, um, often that meant shaking the person up, you know, because, you know, if it's a student publication, they might be, you know, saying writing like they would for a student essay trying to please a professor and get a good grade mm. and it's like no that's actually not what you're doing here i want you to actually like be yourself um and you know be original uh you're not trying to please anybody you're trying to actually address the issue um, mm -hmm. on on that subject um of, of query letters and things like that um one of the really interesting themes for me in your great courses course was the importance of etiquette, um, where at times it seemed strange that you would have to highlight things that you know, <laughs> seem like common sense. And at other times you were describing sets of rules that seemed, you know, as Byzantine and arbitrary as like cricket <laughs> or, you know, courtly manners under the Sun King, you know. Uh, right. And uh, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that. I mean, what what is it about people who are aspiring authors that can lead them into behavior in that mm. realm, you know, that, that where they wouldn't do it and like, they wouldn't walk into a store and get really demanding, you know, with the person they're talking to or expecting them to say, Hey, drop everything you're doing and do a bunch of work for me, please. And get back to me within a day. You know, uh, uh, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that. What is it about aspiring authors that, you know, leads them down a, path they might not otherwise follow in the rest of their life. Mm -hmm. Well, I'm going to make some really broad generalizations that will not apply to every writer, <laughs> but there's a certain category of aspiring author, particularly the person who's had a professional career. Maybe they're coming back to writing 
um, which was their first love, like as they near retirement or they have a chance at a second career. And often these people have held positions of authority or respect, like doctors, lawyers, um, people in investment banking, for instance. And when they face the publishing industry from the outside and they're trying to get attention for their work and they don't they can't get a response, they're sent cryptic rejections, no one will listen to them, they can't pick up the phone and talk to a real person, they are very upset. Like suddenly all of all of this um, status that they have in the world means nothing. And I think it just really exacerbates the frustration and also a lot of the vitriol that's heaped on traditional publishing. Um, sometimes I also think there's a misunderstanding of what traditional publishing is. Like some sometimes I think people see it as like agents are providing you this service or publishers are providing you with some service, but not... Yes and no. I mean, they really do not want to hear from you for the most part. You know, it's like, don't call us, we'll call you. Um, just because they're inundated. There's just so many people who want through the gates. And there's only a small percentage who are going to to get the deal or get representation. Yeah, it's interesting, too. I remember um, being at a uh, meeting with a bunch of small publishers in Montreal once and the um I think the editor in chief or I don't know what you would call him of Publishers Weekly was there. Um and there was this one guy who, you know, was kind of lurking. And um after this rather embarrassing um uh display that was put on by the local publishers um uh who were basically at the same time kind of threatened and jealous that this American uh, Publishers Weekly guy was in Montreal for the first time ever. Um, you know, uh, this guy lurking in the back after it was over, he sort of, he was obviously angling to get the ear of this Publishers Weekly guy. And he had this, not the Publishers Weekly guy, the, the lurker, had this light in his eye. Like, you know what you see when someone is like, you know that they're carrying out a strategy, um, and and what struck me about it, and the reason I remember it to this day, is that like this guy was inhabiting a narrative in which he was fighting to achieve some special status, you know, that of published author, and perhaps there may have been even more of a mission behind it. But there was something about improving his status um, that was mm-hmm. really important that was going on. Yeah, and I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that. I mean, how do you, as an editor, deal with someone who is simultaneously sort of dreaming of becoming something bigger and then gets the cold water, uh, perhaps, poured on them, not only about, you know, the quality of their writing or even their thinking, but mm-hmm. also the fact that, as you were hinting at, publishing's a business. And, you know, it's a publisher, when a publisher publishes your book, they're making a decision to invest in you um, as opposed yeah to any of the other opportunities that they have to invest their time and money and attention in. So, so the, the average person, they may have only written one book. They may actually not be a very avid reader and they may not really understand a lot about what's being currently published. They may have memories of what they read and enjoyed as a younger person, but they may have very little awareness of the literary landscape And so they're writing into a vacuum and they haven't done anything that would help them understand where they're at on the spectrum. They haven't done anything to advance 
their professional knowledge of the field. They're just approaching it, you know, as a total innocent, um, thinking that just because they wrote this thing, it must have some value and not even pursuing it as I need to develop my craft first. Like, why can't I just write a book the first time and have it be commercial publishable quality? So I think they're, I'm always trying to, you know, get them to see that just as doctors need training or lawyers need training, you know, writers go through a very long development process. Um, it's the length of it is different for everyone, but we're talking about years. And so if people aren't invested in it for a year's long duration, it's, you know, don't, I don't want to say give up, but like, why, why bother beating your head against the wall with this one book? If you're, especially if you don't even think you'll write another. Yeah. It's interesting. One of the, um, Another one of the things that struck me about uh, your Great Courses course was, you know, how naive I was myself, even though I've spent a lot of time thinking about these kinds of things about just, you know, in the, not, not so much in my knowledge, but in the way I emotionally related to what's involved in publishing. You know, I did kind of relate to it like it was uh, not that it can't be or isn't a romantic endeavor in a way, but that there is just a lot of really mundane mm. reality and like time is a factor in it and there's a, it, it and it takes a lot of time um and there's just a lot of you know work yes um, a lot of work um and uh and also that you know because of that nature that it has to be something that you find inherently valuable as an activity to do yeah uh, absolutely I, I mean unless unless you're bill clinton and you know <laughs> Publishers are just going to make you a co-author, you know, with a very famous novelist because of who you are already, you know, you're going to have to do a lot of work um, uh, to get there. Um, uh, I know, switching gears a bit, um, I know you get asked all the time and have been for years about the future of publishing and that way back in 2011, you even wrote a satire about (laughs) publishing futurism. Um, So I wanted to ask you about the past. Um, you make the great point on your website that writers have been innovating since the Gutenberg era. Uh, and I was wondering if you could talk perhaps about one or two of the highlights of writers adapting and innovating in the history of book publishing that really stand out for you. Well, one of the examples I frequently point to is Samuel Johnson, who he was like, he's sometimes been called like at that point in time, it's like the new Magna Carta of the modern art, modern modern author, uh, because it was when things flipped and a, where the market was big enough that authors could sustain their careers based on sales. So he was operating during a time when more and more books were being published. There was a growing uh, literate class, and you could be a successful author just on bookstore sales. Um, Now, what's interesting about that is, you know, at the time he was bucking the trend because it was considered more, I don't want to say polite, but it was more customary for you to be paid for your work through some sort of patron and you would dedicate your work to that patron and receive money. Or you just, you were, you were born into privilege and you didn't need money. Um, So there was something a bit crass there in that move that he would just say, forget you, patron, whoever you are, I'm, I can live on my book sales. But what was, you know, that thing that that flipped yet again, um, where, for instance, it was Mark Twain, who 
his most successful book wasn't sold through bookstores, but it was sold door to door, peddled, you know, like a vacuum cleaner or something. And at the time, people, you know, kind of looked down their noses. They're like, well, only, you know, proper authors with proper books are sold in proper bookstores. They are not sold door to door like, you know, uh, <laughs> like like a vacuum cleaner, I guess, or some sort of weird um, smarmy cure or potion. So, but that's where he saw his greatest financial gain was in supporting that effort. And so whenever you find authors who, who are willing to step back and say, this is how the model is going to work for me. This is what I know how to do. This is what I can sustain. Now you find lots of interesting things happen if they're willing to not let status anxiety take over their thinking in terms of how the book gets to the reader. Yeah, that, um, that reminds me of another example of uh, Byron, um, who w was perhaps the first celebrity, some people will say, in a way. And he sort of, you know, um, was uh, of the nobility, but also used scandal um, as a way to spread uh, his own fame. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and of course, there's, um, you know, figures like Dickens as well, who uh, used serial publishing. You know, one of the I... one of the lines that I like to like to use with people is, um, "Do you know why all those 19th century novels that you're aware of are so big?" Uh, and it's because many of them were published serially. And when you've got a hit on your hands, you know, you're out. You might find your publisher asking you to expand your outline. Um, uh, you know, pretty dramatically. Mm -hmm. um, it's like getting, you know, new seasons, signed for new seasons of a television show. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. Moving on to the uh, present um, on the subject of innovation, you published a blog post recently that I think um, originally appeared in the hot sheet about author marketing collectives. And I was wondering mm -hmm. if you could talk a little bit about this idea and how people are using maybe both new and old, you know, technologies of... Uh, getting together in order to provide collective professional support and marketing. Right. The idea of a collective is not new, of course, and artists have been doing it, I think, across decades, if not centuries. But we just haven't yet seen maybe a really formal, uh, large group iteration of this. And so my blog post was looking at a group called the Tall Poppies, which is kind of the biggest that I've yet seen with a very formal or the most formal I've seen structure and branding and goal to reach people who read women's fiction. And you can see these things arising out of a genuine need of authors to have support when they launch their book that they're not getting from their publisher. And that's also hard to collect on a kind of ad hoc basis if you're self-publishing. So, you know, this is, to me, this is so needed. And back in, this is a in 2012, I actually gave a talk at an innovation summit in Berlin where they wanted people to come up with what they thought was the idea that would help the industry innovate. And my idea was publishers need to come up with author care departments to help educate them on how to make their books sell better and to help them collaborate with each other. But, you know, that's that was just considered why why would a publisher have to do that? Like, they don't have the time, the resource, the money. It's the author's responsibility to find their readers. But um, so th there are flaws in the idea. But on the other hand, it's even though authors have always, always complained about 
publisher support. I do feel like the need is more dire now with with the pace of change, with all of the confusing messages out there. Even though you can get more help and do more collaborations with other authors, the misinformation about what works and doesn't is just rampant. And so people just don't know what to do. Like they're they struggle to know where to expend their energy. Yeah, that's a really interesting topic um in a number of ways. I mean, one of which is that you know, publishers might themselves be subject to uh, misreadings of what's going on out there um, and uh, pursuing poor strategies themselves. Mm -hmm. Um, So even if they were, if some of them were motivated to provide author care, they might, it's possible that they could lead authors down the wrong path, which (laughs) complicates things. Um, uh, You know, and you you talk in your book in the beginning of, uh, is it Publishing 101? Um, Sorry, I don't have my Mm -hmm. book in front of me, but... You talk about things being slippery. I think you use that image. Um, and so in the, the world of advice is so difficult in that particular industry because what works for one person in one context might not even work for that same person in mm-hmm. another context or at another time. And so, but, but at the same time, it's one of these things where, you know, people feel like there ought to be an authoritative mm-hmm. playlist out there of what to do. Um, and that really, you know, can't exist because things aren't that, you know, they're, they're just not solid. Yeah. And, you know, that's another thing talking about the work you have to do is you do have to forge no matter what, if you're going to be a, an author, you have to one way or another, you're forging your own path. Um, and you need to be, you know, clear eyed about the advice that you're offered along the way. And there's, I mean, it reminds me of an experience I had in my life where, I had a supervisor for my doctorate who was from, I would say, the last generation where you could simply be a brilliant student, you know, be favored by the dons, go do your years in Glasgow and then, you know, get a position at an Oxford college. Um, And, you know, she told me, and here I am, you know, a doctoral candidate in like, you know, the early 2000s. She's like, oh, yes, uh, it's so silly that doctoral candidates are going to conferences um they shouldn't be doing that and that was like the worst advice Mm -hmm. you could possibly give um you know i promptly responded characteristically by saying oh that's interesting you should say that because i just got accepted to talk at another conference (laughs) next month and she's like well i did she said well i didn't mean you um but I, i i bring up that personal anecdote because people in positions of power can often be uh, to put it offensively, anachronistic. Yes, totally. But nonetheless, still in a position of high power. Yeah. Um, and I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about how that is perhaps changing or is that persisting? I mean, I mean, talking about the high level of like, you know, big five publishers, are they, I know this is a very broad way of asking it, but are they adapting in your opinion or are they still? trying to stay in the past. I do feel that they're adapting. And I base that on the presentations that I hear at industry events like Digital Book World, where you'll hear, you know, the VP of marketing at one of the big five talk about this particular book that they launched successfully with a very digitally driven campaign. And so they can do excellent forward-thinking campaigns when they devote the resources. But the problem is, you know, one title, everyone uh, at every 
type of session like that, someone always raises their hand at the end and asks, so how many titles per season did you do this for? Uh, just this one. <laughs> you know, there are 30 others that just languished because publishers haven't figured out how to do that for every title um, in a way that would make sense from a, a profit loss standpoint. So I don't, I don't know what the answer is there, but I, I think they they kind of know what needs to be done or they can figure out what needs to be done, but they don't have the bandwidth to do it. Um, so that's one issue. Then there's, there's, you, you touched on how that the anachronistic author, <laughs> like the, the author who had jumped immediately to mind, Jonathan Franzen, um, you know, someone who's got so much weight and clout and standing who a lot of people listen to, or maybe not, maybe not so much anymore where he he formed and shaped his career during a very different time. And now, you know, he just basically calls any sort of digital interaction to be horrible, trite, beneath the serious writer, that that type of thing. There are lots of writers out there saying that sort of thing, particularly older writers, not because they're old, but because they just they got their start during a different time. Um, So I feel like there's not a whole lot of. flexibility or open-mindedness for the tools that are used now in a creative and an imaginative way, not in a, like a crass marketing and promotion way. Um, and I feel like younger people are, are finding ways to write and publish that both respect their voice and their work, give them time for that work, um, but also help them build an audience for it. I'm thinking particularly of Wattpad right now, which gets you know, it's, it's totally criticized by a certain type of writer, but you can see that younger writers are very excited about it and it's inspiring. Yeah. I mean, I could, and I'm sure you could too, talk for a long time about the, um, naivete of the high minded, uh, position that (laughs) it sounds like, I mean, I, avoided Jonathan Franzen since I first heard about him because (laughs) I could just tell. Um, But, um, you know, it's interesting. I like to think of the example of um, Ulysses where, you know, all the high minded people treated it like trash Mm -hmm. and it took a bookstore to publish it because no one else had the courage or the vision and, you know, those would have been the people who were all comfortable and had all had everything go tickety-boo. Um, uh, and um, so there's this weird, but but then nonetheless, like the inheritance that we have of all of these revolutionary works, which are now treated with all that high-minded seriousness by the high-minded serious people, um, mm-hmm. they're totally naive about the position that they're adopting. Right. Um, the history of literature, quite frankly. Um, and um, I wanted actually, I had a question I wanted to ask you about that. I, I watched um, on YouTube an interview that you did with Joanna Penn last year, I believe. And, you know, you talk about how the hot sheet is meant to deliver important information to writers. And you talk about um, without invoking any of the headbutting that can happen between writer <laughs> groups. Um, and, you know, as someone who follows publishing industry commentary, you know, I know a little bit about that, but I'm you know, I think to a lot of people that might be a very strange notion that there are these different groups of authors butting heads. Um, yeah. And, you know, for those who perhaps aren't aware of the high and low drama that takes <laughs> place in the publishing industry and the talk that happens around it, you know, even at conferences and panels and stuff like that, 
I was wondering if you could just, you know, give us a little bit of a sense of who these various author groups are and how they go sure. about butting heads. Well, there's the traditional publishing author group, which has been around for many, many years and who, you know, more or less consider their way to be the proper way to publish. And the, the one that's going to be most beneficial, has the most prestige, is tied into validation, has the best professional product, best results. And then you've got the self-published authors who for years and when I say years, let's say throughout the 80s and the 90s and the early aughts, you know, who were frustrated at not being able to break through, finally now got their chance to do so through digital publishing and now are having success. And they are just totally like sticking it to the other side. They're like, ha, you see, see what we did? See, <laughs> someone does want to read our work. Look, we can make money. You can keep your traditional publishing and you're, and actually it's going to die anyway. So it's, there's a little bit of that chip on the shoulder for not all self-publishing authors, but a certain contingent, especially those who felt really put into an outsider position uh, at some point in their career where they weren't given uh, the recognition they thought they deserved. And so now there's also... The, the weird thing is that Amazon now plays a role in this in a strange way. It's like a you can do the Amazon litmus test with people to see where you know wh which side of the fence they're on. Do they like Amazon or do they hate Amazon? <laughs> if it's it's more common for someone on traditional publishing to be very skeptical and anxious, um, suspicious of what everything Amazon does, partly for good reason. And then it's very common on the indie side to be much more like Amazon's awesome. Look at what they've done for us. Um, not without recognition that Amazon can be a bully um, and that they can change the terms at any minute and you're screwed. Um, but it's a much more, I would say, progressive view of Amazon's business practices. I don't know if progressive is the right word, accepting. <laughs> um, but it's hard to find someone who you know, can just look at both sides and understand that Yes, Amazon wields great power. Um, sometimes it's bad, sometimes it's good. Uh, rather than like take a very like moral, moralistic, judgmental attitude. Like right now, you may have noticed there's the news story right now is Amazon is pushing third party sellers up on book buying pages. So they're giving third party sellers the buy book button instead of the new book being sold through Amazon, through the publisher. So the implication is publishers and authors are losing money. Um, so you start to see the, the two groups come out in force. The group that says, well, Amazon's always done this sort of thing and they've always done third party books. What's the big problem? And then you have the Authors Guild and other more traditional organizations saying, this is a travesty and it must be stopped because um, they're trying to protect the old model. Could you explain a little bit more about how that works um, with what, what a third-party seller is, for example? And so, I mean, my understanding of it is that, you know, authors can sell their books directly themselves, but self-published. Publishers can make books available for sale, but then you can just be someone with books in your garage and you can make them mm -hmm. for sale on Amazon, and that's a third-party seller. And, exactly. And would the third-party seller be selling the same books as the publisher? And that's why elevating the third-party publisher in this way is seen as a threat to the 
publishing houses proper? Exactly. So normally the third party sellers are selling used copies, which publishers didn't like when that first happened. Gosh, it's probably been it's been a long time ago, like 15 years ago. Um, so normally they're just selling used, but now they somehow third party sellers get their hands on new copies, which they're only allowed to take the buy button if they have the so-called new condition copy. And so publishers are wondering, how do they get these new condition copies if it's not from us? <laughs> um, and, you know, I think there is some, there's some bad actors as Amazon called them, people who are selling used as new and reaping the profits. But I think as Amazon always does, I think they'll clean up that activity pretty quickly. Um, and there's also, uh, that reminds me, there's like this kind of micro controversy of um, just to show how in the weeds, this kind of thing <laughs> of advanced reading copies, I believe it is. Mm -hmm. So if you are a figure in, you know, the reviewing world, uh, you can get advanced reading copies of books and then some unscrupulous or perhaps just thoughtless types go about selling those advanced reading copies. Right. And I think, that, you know, when as soon as we had online book sales take over much of the market, it suddenly made that kind of like underground market of advanced review copies and remainders and hurts and all of those things. It suddenly brought it more to the forefront um, and more available to people to buy rather than the new book. Um, so I think, you know, publishers, I think a little bit of burden is on them to be much more disciplined and um, procedural and how they handle those types of copies, making it very clear that they're not new condition copies, that they're not to be resold, et cetera. Um, speaking of Amazon, I have a question that I wanted to ask you, and I'm going to frame it in a particular way, which I don't explicitly <laughs> say this is not, I, I'm, fr I'm framing it this way. Um, okay. Uh, and so, um, uh, you're not, um, that's what I'm trying to say. Um, so one of the interesting co controversies in the world of book publishing and book selling that emerged in the last year and a half or so is Amazon opening its own physical bookstores. Mm-hmm. Um, and I wanted to talk a little bit about the nature of the romanticism that often accompanies the discussion of buying and selling books. Um, and my way into this is last year, um, a group of bookstores in Chicago got together, and I don't know if you saw this, but they issued a pretty extraordinary statement of protest after Amazon announced it was going to open a store in a Chicago neighborhood. Mm -hmm. And in the statement itself, there's a complaint that, quote, Amazon's initial choice to sell books was largely for the purpose of collecting customer data, end quote, and that this is contrasted with how, quote, booksellers get to know their customers so that they are able to make personal recommendations, end quote. Um, and it struck me that, I mean, the, 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 the statement is very carefully worded, but it, they're obviously trying to get away with invoking collection of data in order to bring along with it the connotation that comes with that of an invasion of your privacy. Yeah. And then they go on to say the, that we do the most privacy invasive possible thing we could do, which is actually get to know you personally and know all about you. Uh, that's the service that we provide, like much more invasive than anything <laughs> Amazon could ever do. Um, and um, at the end, they have a bunch of, 
you know, and, and there's this weird sort of contradiction where they say, you know, customers are not just, I'm quoting, customers are not just instruments for data collection to enable f- future sales, except that's exactly what they're doing. It's just, it's a, it's a brain, not a computer that's getting to know you in order to make recommendations to enable future sales. Um, and um, I just, I, ha- I can't resist. One of the people who's quoted in the statement online goes on to say that the traditional bookster is, quote, a place where the customer isn't part of a logarithm, but is instead a friend and neighbor, a place where the selection is tailored to those customers and friends, end quote. You know, I mean, I have to make fun of this. The reason I impolitely (laughs) invoking this person's mistaken representation of a logarithm with an algorithm is that often there's a willful and cynical and cruel misrepresentation Mm. of an ignorance about electricity-based technology that comes with the romanticism around books. Um, And I was wondering, I mean, I mean, you don't have to agree with anything I said, um, but, um, you know, what do you think about that? Why is it that there's this, where does that come from, this idea that somehow electricity and computers are anathema to knowledge and reading. We could have a very interesting philosophical conversation. Uh, I, I think so much of this is just driven by fear, um, anger at livelihoods being taken away or something special about the community perhaps being stolen away. Uh, it's, you know, publishing has been, been such a traditions business, at least from my perspective and Amazon just breaks all of those traditions and has, I I do sympathize. Like they have that kind of Silicon Valley quality of like, uh, what is it? Break things, move fast and break things without like any concern for any harm you might cause in the process or the greater good. So like, I get it, but when when I see statements like the ones like the one you read, I just it drives me crazy. Like it is not productive. I don't think the bookstores gain anything by trying to do battle with Amazon on that level. I think they're just speaking to a very small contingent of people who feel exactly the way they do, and that contingent is getting smaller. I think they'd be much better served to show how. You know, they are a real presence in the community. They support the community through events or through whatever it is that they do and compete based on value that they provide that an online bookstore can't or even that an Amazon store can't. I mean, I don't feel like Amazon stores are suddenly going to displace indie bookstores. I don't. I really don't. Um, I think there's room for everyone here. I think they're very different types of stores uh, and whether they're different customers, I don't know. I don't know that Amazon bookstores have been long enough, been around long enough for us to say, but it's just, I I wish they would focus on something else other than trying to make out Amazon to be some devil. Um, Yeah. And and to be, I mean, somewhat fair, um, they, you know, they do spend, you know, that is one of the main themes of their um, statement that, you know, they provide this, um, uh, you know, community building stuff. Um, but I've got to say, I mean, I guess I'm a bit of an iconoclast in this respect, but, you know, I was interviewing someone recently 
uh, Mirella Ronsevich, um, about this. And she talked about how, I mean, I'll, I'll probably not invoke the same example she used, but you know, where she, where she was growing up, you couldn't find a book on divorce in the bookstore. And you probably couldn't find a book on homosexuality in the bookstore. Mm -hmm. And if you went to your local community bookstore and personally went to that personal bookseller who knows you and your parents and your friends and your priest, and Mm -hmm. you asked for a book on divorce, you know, word would get around. Um, And this, it just, I mean, and I, I guess, you know, I'm getting, you know, a little bit of emotion about it, but like this notion, you have to be the kind of person who just profoundly fits in, you know, in order to be so naive about knowledge mm-hmm. and sharing and community and in, including locality, you know, the local is so great. No, mm-hmm. not necessarily. Uh, mm-hmm. For some people, the local, I mean, you know what, for some people are rails, you know, they stand up in their prison bars. Um, and, um, you know, to, you know, as they say, as someone says in this statement, we know what the people of our towns and cities want to read, you know, to which my response is, you know, fuck you. <laughs> really? You're that presumptuous that you're going to say you know what all the peoples of Chicago, you know what they want to read and what they ought to be reading. You know, no, no, you don't. Um, and I guess I'm, you know, going on a bit of my own direction here. But, you know, it's just so striking to me that that aspect of the discussion around books is so rarely challenged that mm-hmm. you, there's nothing necessarily benevolent about your local bookstore. <laughs> um, I, I agree. I don't find them of a higher moral quality. Um, I, I always look at it. I tend to look at it from a very business perspective. Either they're running a business that can compete or they're not. I don't feel like they ought to be gifted into survival somehow. I mean, sure they need fair terms. Um, Publishers, I think, can be helpful in their sustainability, but I, yeah, we're closer on that than farther apart. <laughs> um, just to invoke another, uh, perhaps less less emotional, but more business side controversy. Um, recently, and I'm sure you've heard about this, the UK Publisher Association published an annual report that the media picked up on, in which the story essentially became, you know, ebook sales are down. And print book sales are up. And um, from what one might call the usual suspects, the news was was greeted with um, glee. (laughs) Uh, And full disclosure, I mean, I hate that cliche, but there it is. Um, I wrote a pretty acerbic piece about this subject for TechCrunch back in 2015 already, where I invoked the idea of dark matter in the publishing Mm -hmm. universe, where, you know, the numbers that are reported, you know, often necessarily don't include untracked, you know, ebook sales. Um, but I'm nowhere near to the expert you are on this. And I was wondering, I mean, just to give you a lot of room to respond, what's your take on all of this? It feels like revenge for all the stories that came out in 2010 or so about print dying. Because I feel like everyone's so excited, Who all of the saviors of print, they're so excited that the narrative has flipped. And yeah, the glee. But it's not, if you care about books and publishing, there should not be anything happy about this news because, and and it's also, I don't want to say it's fake news. It sort of is. I'll get to that in a minute. But if, if all of the stats as presented are, if you take them at face value and you don't dig on what's underneath that, it is not a good thing that publishers are seeing declining ebook sales. Um, the, the, the uplift in print 
at least in the U.S., is driven by Amazon's discounting and its own increasing market share. And the people who love print probably do not want to see Amazon just gaining more and more on both the print and the ebook side. So there, like, it's such a weird, perverse thing to take pleasure and in, in these statistics. But okay, so here's the truth about those statistics. It just cuts out a huge piece of the market, as you alluded to. It doesn't cover the self-publishing activity. Amazon doesn't release its numbers. So we don't really have a good picture of how ebook sales are increasing. And all of the data we do have indicates that major publisher share of digital is shrinking as the more independent small press and Amazon share is growing. So and also, I think the averages are very deceptive. So you'll see the averages of like 25% ebook for the major five. But when you look at specific categories like fiction, it's fully 50%, sometimes higher, depending on the category we're talking about. So it's it, it the mainstream news stories on this, you know, just re- it's another thing that drives me insane. And I feel like I have to respond to them every single time and try and quash the myth that we're somehow all nostalgic for print. We are not. <laughs> no. Yeah. Um, uh, that's, uh, you know, one of the themes of my, uh, or of this podcast is, um, you know, there are people who you can tell carry with them, um, a sense of scarcity when it mm. comes to knowledge. And there are people who've never, whether they actually experienced scarcity or not, don't have a sense of it. Um, and, you know, for me growing up, you know, I grew up in a nice middle-class family. We were by no means poor, but going to the bookstore was just like pick one every two months. Cause they cost mm-hmm. 50 bucks, you know? Um, and, uh, the fact, I mean, I remember, you know, the first thing I looked up when I first got on the internet was um, getting a copy of the Brothers Karamazov, um, which is perhaps the nerdiest thing you could do, except for the second thing I did, which was then look up Star Trek fan fiction. Um, uh, <laughs> um, uh, you know, people who just want to, you know, read all of Dickens, you know, they can just go to the Gutenberg Project and bang, there it is. You know, you don't need to be able to go anywhere. You don't need to spend any money. You don't need to have the local bookseller decide that they are going to have a copy of Nicholas Nickleby on mm-hmm. their shelf, as opposed to all the other things they could have there. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I, I'm with you on the, the perversity of people who set themselves up as being the guardians of high culture, then taking pleasure in a system that makes it's money from scarcity. Yeah. Uh, the inherent scarcity that comes with paper and space and money. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and um, yeah, I, I think, and there's, and there, I mean, of course it's wrapped up in other things too. Like, you know, Matthew Ingram had this great line about a whiff of digital schadenfreude. <laughs> I love, just love the word whiff and schadenfreude in the same, in the same sentence for some reason. But um you know, there. I, I think. I mean, there. You one does get the sense, including in the news publishing industry, that there's, you know, something broke inside people when mm. you know the desktop publishing came around, and you know when computers came around, and there was, as you say, I mean, I don't mean to be insensitive to threat, lost livelihoods and lost traditions and lost patterns, but you know, the other side of that coin is you know, you can carry around 
a thousand novels in your pocket. Um, and that's, that's a great thing. Um, uh, on the subject of the future, cause you, you inevitably get asked about it. And so I'm going to do that, um, too. Um, I want to talk to you about something that, you know, is sort of around in the publishing and self-publishing discourse, which is generally just expressed as, you know, subject of data. Um, and it's really interesting to speculate, for example, about what Amazon's up to with their physical bookstores, you know, they literally know where you live and they know what you buy in real time. And so they can perhaps use the, as a giant corporation, they can, you know, perhaps use that kind of hyper local real time data to identify trends and stock their bookstores accordingly. Mm -hmm. Um, but I guess my question for you is about the direct usefulness of data to self published authors. Uh, I mean, there are entire startups out there that sort of pitch to authors that, you know, data is going to be a driver of success in the future. And, you know, while I, I'm, you know, firmly convinced that, you know, what we're speaking of generically is data in some sense will, of course, be very useful for people, who, marketing companies, media companies. How important is this now and how important is this going to be in the future for, like, you know, the direct activity undertaken by, independent activity undertaken by a self-published author? To me, it seems really central to the whole game. I mean, it's it's clear to me that Google, Facebook, Amazon, Apple—they're all they're all trafficking trafficking and collecting as much data and knowledge about people as possible in order to sell ads or uh, services, products, trying to make a better pitch and refine it to appear just at the right time. Because I I think the growing realization is that we're all fighting for attention, like all the media is fighting for attention. And rather than expect people to come to you, to your side or to what you've got, you ha you have to show up in their line of sight where they already are, whether that's a search engine or on Amazon or, or whatever it happens to be. And so knowing how to do that means you have to, you have to start learning about who you're trying to reach and what their behavior is like. I often talk about a marketer from Big Five Publishing, Pete McCarthy, who started blogging on these topics some years back and now runs uh, a data startup for publishing called Optically. It's all about having better data-based insights into how your books are ranking, scoring, performing on Amazon, and how the greater search engine world looks at that page and how it connects to everything that's online. Very powerful once it comes out. I think it's going to be, I think, an incredible tool for both publishers and authors. But I think there's there's always kind of like two sides of this coin. There's there's so much data out there actually that authors can tap into right now. It's overwhelming. Like people don't know how to sift through it. So I think one of the things we still need that I don't yet, I think these things are still developing are like dashboards and ways to interpret what information is out there, windows or le a lens, a, a, a better perspective on how to use this information to improve your marketing. Yeah, it's really interesting. I um, uh, tried a Facebook ads campaign a little while ago, just, you know, testing the waters. Um, and basically it goes, trust us. <laughs> we've got that. We've got the logarithms. <laughs> um, <laughs> Uh, and it's, it's sort of curious, you know, the, at the same time as, you know, people at that level 
are very motivated to represent themselves as, you know, masters of the dark arts and rocket surgeons who, you know, know things that you don't. That also means that as the user of it, you're put in a position where you just have to, you kind of either have to bust that myth or simply be passive. Mm -hmm. Um, And I mean, I guess, I guess you're suggesting that there is going to be a middle ground where, you know, a, a good, a good company can surface that dashboard to an author in a way that, you know, where they can actually, you know, get enough information that they can use their own judgment and understand a little bit about what's going on, even though there's, you know, inevitably going to be something sophisticated that they don't quite get. Right, right. You can see little, little signs of this through like the ebook distributor pronoun is trying to offer these types of data-based insights saying, hey, you're, you're in these two categories, but have you thought about these others that might be more ideal. I think it's still these sorts of things are at a very basic level, but I think they can level up pretty quickly. Um, my last question for you is also about the future. Um, you've got a book coming out next year from the University of Chicago Press called The Business of Being a Writer. Um, and I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that book, um, uh, which I assume people can pre-order um, uh, uh, um, on Amazon. Um <laughs> If that's not true, please. please. <laughs> it's it's not quite ready for pre-order, mainly because I'm working with a university press, and they're not they're they're not terribly um, fast. And 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 to be fair, the book won't release until March 2018, so it's still a little still a little early. But the book's done, and like it's in production. So this this book was born out of a desire to see students in classrooms, whether undergrad or graduate, have a much better understanding of how the business of publishing works and to give them realistic expectations for what their career will look like and what compromises are going to be involved and how writers make money aside from just publishing books. I don't think it's talked about enough, especially in academic settings, um, in MFA programs about what it means after like post degree, what it means to pursue a life as a writer, the practicalities are, are often pushed aside or it's put on, Oh, let's have a Q and a with an agent or an editor or, Oh yeah, you can do an internship at our literary journal that reaches a hundred people. You know, you need something a little bit more, um, empowering and realistic if you actually do want to see, writing be your full-time gig. So the book is meant to help prepare writers for that. Well, uh, thanks very much um, for taking the time to do this interview um, and uh, telling your own story. I really, really enjoyed it and uh, for your frank opinion as well. (laughs) I appreciated your views. Very frank, passionate. It's good. Thanks. (laughs) Thanks very much.